Hi, you're listening to The Gesher Sessions, a podcast on the psychology of religious belief and experience. My name is Dr. John Catone, and I've been a psychologist for almost 20 years. But for most of my life, I've been on a quest to better understand the mysteries of existence, as well as the beliefs that people have about those mysteries. Joining me on this quest are two of my closest friends, Daphne Solta-Stein and Dr. David McLean. Daphne and David are not just my companions on the road of truth. They're two of the smartest and deepest people I know. If you've been searching for an oasis where people have intelligent conversations about religion without sacrificing rational thinking or intellectual honesty, then you've found what you've been looking for. And we've been waiting for you. So come on and join us. And let's cross some bridges together. Welcome, everyone, and thank you for joining us on the Gesha Sessions podcast. Joining me once again are my co-hosts, Daphne Solta-Stein and Dr. David McLean. Today's episode, episode one, is entitled Why Faith Matters, and it's the first of our three foundational episodes. These episodes will lay the groundwork for the future of this podcast series, and each of us will have an opportunity to share with you a perspective that lies at the heart of our belief system. This first episode on Why Faith Matters is based on a book by the same name by Rabbi David Wolpe, and it's Daphna's foundational episode. So now, without further ado, here's Daphna to tell us more about why faith matters and why this book is part of her foundation of belief. Thirteen years ago in 2010, according to the inside flap of this well, well-worn book, and I read why Faith Matters by Dr. Rabbi uh, David Wolpe. I think I read it for myself, but partially in response to questions asked by many of the parents of children that I teach and train for Bar and Bat Mitzvah. What I loved about this book was David's express purpose, which is, or I should say Rabbi Wolpe's, The purpose of this book has been to clear away the cynicism, to suggest that the usual objections to faith, that science disproves it, that it is dangerous, that it is irrational, are simply not true. When did Rabbi Wolpe realize he needed to write this book? When he was told by an oncologist that he had lymphoma. And he recognized that his time potentially would come to an end. And he began to ask the questions that matter. Why, and those questions I will go into in a little bit. But first I wanna say in his prelude to the book, he talks to us about questions and deep questions. And he reminds us that the world and life as we are when we are small children begin with questions as the great um, American folk singer Woody Guthrie sang and I used to play this to my children as toddlers all the time why oh why oh why why oh why oh why because 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 that is why and Rabbi Wolpe says to us it is the act and I might add the art of asking questions that enables faith, 
the art of questioning, the ING is important. Faith is less about the answers and more about one's willingness to go on the journey. There are four questions that Rabbi Walpi suggests are the most crucial or essential questions. And he has arrived at these after sitting with thousands of people in various ways, shapes, and forms as a rabbi. First question is, what awaits me after I die? Second question, what do I want to transmit to my children? Third question, why are we here? Fourth question, can I believe that we all live in the presence of a God, something so intangible in a world that is based so much on tangibles? In the first chapter of the book, um, Rabbi Walpi describes a meeting. He's visiting a congregant in the hospital who has cancer, and he recognizes that listening is more important than having answers and um, finding a, a place of communion or community with this man with cancer because he had had cancer himself was the, one of the most powerful experiences he ever had. And so I want to begin our discussion by asking a very broad and general question to, to David and John. Why does faith matter? What would our world look like today without it? Why does faith matter? David. Yeah, so um, first I'd like to say thank you for the uh, introduction to Wolpe's um, book, Daphna. I think one of the things that um, we have to do when we talk about faith or belief or religion or even the word spirituality is understand that there's a lot of confusion out there about what these words mean. When people evoke these words or invoke these words, they mean often different things by them. And some people that, for example, want to be critics of these words and what they're connected with um, will use them and sort of a, have, a, have a derogatory definition in mind to begin with. So that's my preface to, to the answer. Faith matters, and, and perhaps I should discuss describe what I mean by faith. Um, faith matters in a religious context. Let's just think of religion as sort of a catch-all uh, phrase. That is a commitment to a certain metaphysical view of reality um, that has built in rituals, practices, uh, thought patterns, and, and, and an ethos. Um, it matters because it orients one in, in life through and through life. It's not something that is just a one-shot thing, but um, it guides a person throughout their entire lifetime and gives them a sense of connection, meaning, and that they're at home in what would otherwise be an alien uh, and, and foreign cold universe. John, why does faith matter to you? I think it's impossible for us to know everything, even about our human existence. And so we need to rely on faith as a currency almost to help us to get through everything in our lives about which we don't know anything about. When 
we go into an elevator, we have faith on some level that the elevator was inspected, worked, works properly, and that we're not going to fall hundreds of feet to our death. We have faith in the systems that we've put in place for inspection and people taking care and maintenance. And there are so many other things in our life. We have faith when we're on the road that other people, average people like us, are going to obey the traffic rules and they're not going to swerve to hit us. Obviously, that faith gets broken from time to time. There are people who drive drunk. But what would our existence be like if we didn't have any faith? We would never leave the house. We certainly wouldn't go into an elevator or over a bridge. <laughs> um, we would be paralyzed. So, you know, I think there's faith with a small f, and Rabbi Walpi here is talking about faith with a capital F, faith in something larger and existential. And I think there's a, a sense of humility that comes from faith because it's an acknowledgement, a tacit acknowledgement that you don't know everything. And in that humility, I think human relations can, can be fluid and compassionate and understanding. And so I guess that's how I would discuss uh, my you know, understanding about why faith matters. I heard, uh, well, there were many things, but I heard two things that um, resonated with me. Your examples, John, speak to recognizing that the world is full of intangibles, things we can't see, like the um, whatever it is that makes that elevator go up and down. Is that electricity? And, and, and um, it's science. There's the mm -hmm. science. There's electricity there. There's um, weights magnets, um, propulsion, all, all kinds of ideas that we know about through science, that intangible we can't see. And yet we have faith in them. We have faith in this podcast, in our ability to hear words and know what they mean. If we were looking at the written page, we have faith that we can look at these little marks in ink on a page and make sense of them, but the ideas are not tangible until our brain knows how to use them, for example. So there's an intangibility that one must accept, must might not, not be the word, must, one must be willing to wrestle with and accept in order to believe in the presence of something greater and common to ourselves which one might call God, right? Or a, or a worldwide um, big mind intelligence, God, if you will. And to have faith in that, even though we can't see it, touch it, smell it, taste it. And that goes back to that foundational story of Abraham, which is common to Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, the Western religions. Um, the, to the Torah, the Bible doesn't tell us how Abraham hears God other than he hears God. What does that mean? The children will say, well, did he hear a voice? I never hear a voice. 
or is it an inner insight? You know, what does it mean to hear or to feel God's presence? And it has something to do with closeness and relationship, which was the other thing I heard you speaking about, John. Um, And there's a yearning for closeness and relationship between humans when we see humans as healthy that people yearn for when they yearn for God. Is there a time in your life when you felt that closeness to another human being or to God? David, would you like to address that? Yeah, I would like to address that. I like to also, uh, I like John's distinction between little F and big F, capital F, faith. Um, John gave very good examples of what I would call pragmatic faith, basically that I know I have faith that my car is still outside. Uh, I've got faith, to use your elevator example, that I'm not going to die when I uh, step onto the elevator. That That's the kind of practical, pragmatic faith that we are immersed in. You know, we don't know the details of how we get through this life. But the the faith that really religion or mystical uh, mysticism is more connected with is the faith that uh, we are here for a reason, that our lives matter, and that existence has a purpose. When people talk about God, if they don't talk about those three things, they're not really talk, not really saying very much. So that's the capital faith. That's the capital F faith that, that I think we're really sort of zeroing in on in, in this discussion. To, to the point that John made about small f faith, the practical faith, pragmatic faith, that idea of, of basically a pervasive ignorance that we have, that need for humility, speaks into, right, claims that we can make about big F faith questions like, does, you know, about God, for example, and God's attributes, things like that. And maintaining that sense of, of uh, humility, I think, is critical. Now, in terms of the experience I've had, uh, I've had a number of experiences that led me to claim a very robust faith. Some of them come from the arts. Um, come, some of them come from, from walks and hikes. Um, but I would say mostly it's, it's from an internal dialogue. And uh, I'll just end my answer to your question, Dr., by just reading the very, very beginning of Emerson's, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson's essay, Self-Reliance. Ne te quesiveris extra, he says. Ne te quesiveris extra in Latin, which translates, do not look outside yourself. So I have a lot more I can say about what I think Emerson is getting at and what we can sort of unpack in our discussion about faith. Yeah, real quick, you know, just on the Emerson line about not looking outside yourself is uh, similar to the Hindu or yoga concept of thou art that. And yes, um, Top to uh, I see. yes, yes. Yeah. you say it better than I do. Faith and science, we were talking about before, as a scientist myself, I have a number of uh, scientific publications on neuroscience, psychiatry, and so on and so forth. Uh, Science could not exist in its current form without faith, because when you sit down as a scientist, you are basing your current research on the findings and research papers of the past. And you did not perform any of that research yourself, you're having faith that the scientists who performed those studies did so honestly, without any fraud, without any data fudging. And we know from, you know, experience and high profile cases of scientific fraud that that's not always the case. But 
research in its current form in science, in whatever discipline we're talking about, could not exist without faith in previous studies around which the foundation of one's current research um, is built. So faith exists in, in science as well, even among the most non-religious believers. When I think about um, you know faith with a capital F, one of the you know, and the quandaries that it poses, one of the famous examples from history that comes up is Pascal's wager, where Pascal considered, well, what do you gain and what do you lose by believing or not believing? And, you know, well, you know, if if God doesn't exist and, you know, you're a believer and you based your life on that, then in Pascal's view, all you lose is one finite human life where you could have lived, you know, a slightly more hedonistic life of some sort. But if God does exist and you live in a, in a way that is non-believing and, and take advantage of other people and live a, an evil life, you know, in Pascal's view, well, then you're a loser for all eternity. On a sort of a related level, I would propose a slightly different wager, a more psychological uh, wager that, you know, we don't know for a fact, whether God exists, whether there's an afterlife uh, or anything beyond what our senses can perceive. However, as a psychologist, I see, as I noted before, I see tremendous benefits just in the practice of faith, both with a small F and with a capital F, because I, in my experience professionally and clinically, when people have both of these types of faith, it structures their mind in such a way that allows them to contextualize their suffering. And none of us are immune from suffering, whether it's physical suffering, psychological suffering, emotional suffering. Faith allows people to contextualize their suffering in a way that makes it hurt less. It gives us sort of a a purpose almost to our suffering, a redemptive purpose to our suffering. And, and when you have that redemptive purpose, it just, it hits less. And so I would say that even if all of this is just one big farce and there is no God and there's no afterlife and, you know, none of the stuff that religion or spirituality is based on is real, there is still a benefit, I believe, to faith because it helps us to contextualize our suffering and the unknowns in, in life. Yeah, and John, just on a quick a quick comment on Pascal's wager that a lot of people don't realize is that Pascal, in in giving us that wager, um, was playing with people who um, were struggling with faith uh, issues. So for him, the wager was pusillanimous and didn't really speak to the kind of robust faith that Pascal himself had. It was a kind of a gimmick, um, uh, and it. He didn't really mean it, is what I'm saying. He did that. That wasn't how he approached faith. Mm. Um, and secondly, I, if you stick with Emerson, um, and there's so much more we could say about about everything that was said so far. But if you stick with Emerson's notion that nete quesivita uh, extra, that one need not look outside oneself. I would make the claim that faith experienced capital F faith experiences lead one to a kind of certainty about the existence of God. I'm fairly certain in the 
the existence of God because I exist. And I can unpack that in a variety of ways. But uh, I am a being who's conscious of myself, who has the ability to conceive of galaxies, billions of light years away, et cetera, and go on and on. And my, my proof, if you will, of the existence of God isn't uh, a chemistry set or astronomical observations, but an internal dialogue about what this reality is. So that, that dance between small f and capital F, um, I think is a, is, it, there's a lot of ground to explore there, because I think you're right, John, there's, a, there's sort of a palliative dimension to both kinds of faith. And I can hear people listening now saying, yeah, but that's just psychology. That's just palliative uh, stuff. And it's a crutch to which I'll say something like this in, in support of what you just said. What's wrong with crutches? Uh, um, which, yeah. What, what's wrong with crutches? If a crutch is something you need to move and walk uh, the rest of the journey, then by all means, use a crutch. Now, the issue is, are you deluding yourself in the use of the crutch? That's a whole different conversation. Um, then maybe down the road today, in today's episode or uh, later, we'll talk about this idea of faith being irrational. I think Dafka mentioned that um, in, in connection with Wolpe's book. And there are various ways to think of rationality, right? We have sort of left brain linear thinking kind of people who only see the world in scientific terms. And then you have phenomenologists who see that the, the world is much richer than what the scientists would, would tell us. So, David and John, um, I'm going to read a passage, which is a story that uh, Rabbi Wolpe puts in the beginning of his um, religion and science chapter. But then I'm going to backtrack to capital F faith and small faith and the idea of having a calling. First, let me read this, Does Science Disprove Religion? He tells a very short little story. A thousand years from now, when scientists have solved all the questions that plague humanity, they are finally ready for the ultimate challenge. They elect a representative to address God. God, says the scientist in charge, you are no longer needed. You serve to function in your day, but that day is gone. We can do everything that you can do. So, bye. There is a moment of silence. Then a voice booms out of the sky. Everything? Everything? Yes, answers the science. Everything. We can do everything that you can do. Can you make a human being from dust? Asks God. Absolutely, says the scientist. Okay, says God. Let me see you make a human being. The scientist reaches down and digs his hands into the earth. Oh no, says God. Get your own dust. Science. Big F, small F. I'm moving on. I could. Should I ask you your response to that story first? Let's do that and then I'll move on to my other having a calling question. John. I'm going to have to think about this one. David, if you have something. Yeah, uh... I do. Actually, actually <laughs> it's uh, some televangelists. Get your own dust, David. Tele <laughs> televangelists use that example. Um, it's actually quite clever. 
And I, I think it works, frankly. Um, I think that the idea of a unified theory, which is what physicists and scientific community are pursuing um, as the ultimate answer, you know, the, the equation of equations um, is kind of farcical. I think that if we had all of the, which will never happen, but by definition, science never ends, right? I think if we were to have a stop on scientific discoveries, I think that would not answer the most important question that human beings have, which is why? What's it all for, right? And it goes back to a question that the ancient Greeks had asked and that the philosopher Heidegger asked, why is there something, why not rather nothing, right? These kinds of questions, this goes back to what uh, Rainer Maria Rilke says when he says, you know, love yourself, love the questions. These questions are not going to go away. They're, they're going to be with us. These are the, the most poetic, profound, existential questions that we carry around. Science simply doesn't have anything to say about them. That's okay, right? I think that one of the fallacies in, in the, the faith versus uh, non-faith or the belief versus atheism debate is that science and somehow faith is are in competition and they're absolutely not. There are places where absurdities are uttered by people who are with, speaking from within religious tradition. There are also absurdities discussed by scientists when they want to reduce everything to materialism and physicalism, when obviously our lives are not lived uh, as physicalists, we live as people who befriend and love and have all kinds of pre decor experiences, things that make life worth living have really very little to do with with uh, with the physical. So, yeah. But John, are you ready now? Are you I, ready to jump I in? Have a, I have <laughs> a little bit of a humorous story. So someone recently told me they were um, experimenting with some psilocybin mushrooms and mushrooms of course come from dust right they come from the earth so he ended up taking much larger dosage than he originally intended because the initial dosage uh really kind of uh messed with his perceptions so you know typically i i, I guess to get a really good trip people take like three grams of psilocybin he had taken seven grams and had you know really an amazing experience and he said at seven grams of psilocybin, he was convinced that he was talking to God. Well, on seven grams of mushrooms, I guess his perceptions were so messed up and distorted, he started eating everything in sight, including the rest of his mushrooms. And so he ended up taking a total of 14 grams of these mushrooms. So at seven grams, he was convinced that he was talking to God. At 14 grams, he was convinced that he was God. Right. So, and where did this come from? This came from the dust, right? Which created the mushrooms. Now, this goes back to what you brought up before, David, about Tatsvayam uh, Asi, thou art that, that we have this sort of dualism or reductionistic separation between us you know, as humans and whatever else is in the field, whether it's the dust, whether it's the earth, whether it's in this case, even God or our conception of it. And so I think that we make these reductions because life is, is easier uh, psychologically to make these reductions. But in the famous lyrics from 
Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young in, in their great song, Woodstock, we are stardust, <laughs> right? And the same thing that makes up the stars makes up all of us. And that's something that physicists have documented. We are all in different frequencies, forms of light radiation. So quite literally from a physics perspective, mm -hmm. we are that. So it's a different way of kind of looking at it. We just don't recognize it, that we yeah. are that. I think that's right, John. I think, though, um, there are successive hurdles to jump away from reductivism. So I think that uh, one hurdle to jump is to recognize that we are star stuff. Mm -hmm. But at some point, you're going to find that that's an inadequate representation of your experience as a human being. So what? Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm a bunch of guys. Yeah, that's great. But what does that mean? We are much more. Then I, th I think even the concept of, of God is reductivist in the mouths of, frankly, I'm going to be a little bit uh, maybe overreaching here, but for the sake of argument, I think most people's conception of God is reductionist. Uh, William James had a very famous, uh, in one of his popular lectures, which I can't remember exactly which popular lecture it was. I got to go find it. He says uh, he's talking to a bunch of white males in black suits with the tie, you know, with, with the garb, but with the ties of the day and the beards. And uh, maybe it's a Harvard club or something like that. And he's giving this lecture and he says uh, to, the, to the men in, that are present, he says, most of you think you're going to heaven and that you're good Christians and that you're going to heaven. He says, but not one of you can imagine that when you get there, this is using James's language of the time. Not one of you can imagine that a Chinaman or a Negro will be sitting next to you. And then he goes on to talk about these sort of incredibly narrow conceptions that people have of God. And it's those narrow conceptions that cause them the problems that they have, right? The old Jewish, the old mystical, even the beyond Judaism conception that God is something, not first of all, not a thing and not a being. That something and not a grandfather sitting and on not the a cloud. grandfather or anything like that that can be described as John is a Taoist. You say, you know, you the first line in the Tao Te Ching is if you know the Tao, if you think you know the Tao, you, you don't, that's not the Tao. And when any kind of thing you say about God is, is a limiting thing, which is probably not very good to be doing. So, again, I think that I what I can see happening in our discussions is that. We need to sort of really unpack how we use language, because I think a lot of the problems that exist between, in, in, in more broad terms, militant atheists and hardcore papists, if you will, right, is a problem of language, and that there is a kind of way we can build bridges between the two sides that can at least uh, allow for a spur dialogue that's respectful. So one of the ways that we can build bridges across cultures, across um, continents, between those who quote unquote believe and have faith and those who quote unquote don't, is to think about our task in life and what is our calling. And I'm going to read you a story that's in Rabbi Wolpe's book, which is a story that is used a lot um, with children and with their parents, I, I'm a Jewish family educator, so in family groups. And the story goes like this. A man once came to an old rabbi, a famous rabbi, the Beltzer rabbi, 
his heart breaking from the pain and suffering and injustice in the world. Rabbi, he cried out, look at all the suffering, the anguish and the distress in your world. Why don't you send help? Send help? I did send help. I sent you. So to respond to faith is to feel one has been sent. The essential task of religion for those who have faith in it with the small f or the large f, whichever religion or God you're talking about, is that the task of religion in this world is to heal, to help, to repair what has been shattered. It's a strange and painful irony that religion has often made the world worse, which is that narrow interpretation of religion that allows me to ride out with an army to conquer your land in the name of whatever religion I'm conquering, but it's really about power and land and access to resources and not about faith in God and being good in the world. But the quality of religion's response is an answer to God only valuable if we see that God's spirit in us is to have a calling and to have a task to tikkun olam, to improve the world, to heal it. In the Jewish perspective, the world is shattered and it's been shattered since creation. And it's our job to tikkun olam, to heal and repair the world, which will never, ever be perfect. So I have a question. Um, Have you heard the call? And if so, what is God calling you to do? If I can use the word God here. (laughs) So what, what I would say, and thank you for bringing up Tikkun Olam, in a previous discussion in a different forum, we, we talked a little bit about our differences in some of these areas, and uh, I hope we'll have an episode on this at some point in the future, that, you know, as a Taoist, I see things a little bit differently, but, you know, I'll save the crux of that for a future episode. But in terms of calling, I try to look at things not so much as healing the world. Instead, I try to look at things as doing the task that is right in front of me. And rather than thinking about the world at large, I think about the person who is right in front of me or the task that is right in front of me. For me to think about the world in a tikkun alam sort of a way is too, is too broad. And I think can, from my perspective... Uh, it can take me off into other directions that might be more egoistic and antithetical to what I feel is inherent within me. So I try to focus on the task right in front of me. And from a clinical perspective, working with patients, that is to try to ease the suffering of the the person who is right in front of me. Why do I do that? Do I do that to heal the world? I don't know if I would say I do that to heal the world. The way I've sort of described it in the past is in my meditations, in my introspection, in my self-reflection, I've tried to know thyself. And in learning myself, I try to figure out, well, who I am. And in the same way that a lion does what a lion does, in this case, a lion eats antelopes and a lion eats other animals. Lion, you know, runs through the prairies. 
you can't get a lion to be an antelope and you can't get a lion to be uh, a bird or a fish. A lion is what it is. I am what a John Catone is. And I try to do what a John Catone does. And so each day I feel that my calling is to reflect and meditate on who John Catone is. As I get deeper into reflection, I realize and understand that I am deeper than John Catone. And so essentially my calling or my task each day as I see it is to do what a John Catone or what the deeper I simply does, to simply express that which is deepest inside of me. And the ways that I've been trained, the ways that I've been cultured refines what a John Catone does or what I do. And I simply try to express that in its own way. I feel that that in and of itself is an expression of God in a thou art that sort of a way. Which, which reflects back to the very first creation story, right? In, in, in mm. the Bible, the Garden of Eden, with this idea that God says, let us, let us make man in our image. So this idea of being created in God's image, to me, you've articulated it beautifully, John, as who is the deeper John Catone? So when a person looks deeply into your eyes and vice versa, they're looking in and seeing the John Catone, who's the deeper John Catone. And there's this wonderful exercise um, that I actually learned from Rabbi Wolpe that I use when I teach meditation before we go into meditation is to sit facing someone else and look into their eyes. And what inevitably happens is you two, you smile or you start laughing because there's a discomfort in looking so deeply into another soul. And so you, you allow that to happen as the facilitator. And then you say, now let's try it again and get past that natural response of unease of laughing and allow that to happen and go past it and see what you feel. And what happens is there's an opening of the heart on a somatic body level. There's a spreading and a widening and an opening, which is vulnerable, which is humble, which is the wonderful place to start if one wants to practice tikkun olan, repairing the world. And there's a wonderful saying, a proverb, Jewish proverb from the Talmud, if you save one life, you've saved the world, which addresses John's idea of let me just be John Catone at his deepest self and facing what's in front of me today. And for those of us who aren't sitting in front of one-on-one -on -one with, with patients, it means an openness to what's going on around us. Does it mean helping the old lady with her packages as she's unloading her car and dragging them up the steps into her house? I can glance across the street and see it and do nothing, or just walk across and say, can I just help you put this stuff inside your door? Do you want me to carry them onto the kitchen table for you? What does it take to pause and notice and act? That's all it takes to repair the world. Yeah, that's that's a very good way to put it, uh, I think. 
to sort of build bridges between John and uh, and the two the Takun Alam crowd uh, is to is to know is to basically uh, emphasize that Takun Alam is often interpersonal uh, and very personal. It's not a grand sweeping thing. Uh, it's a recognition that there are lots of problems. But to get back to your question about a calling, I do have a very strong sense of calling. And that strong sense of calling has led me to this podcast because I have a, a very strong sense that all of the struggles in education that I've undertaken have been or experienced has allowed me to end conversations in small groups with people, has allowed me to see the good in the other side, find the good in the other position, to try to cease demonizing the other's position, whether it's a liberal um, criticizing a conservative or vice versa, whether it's someone that's pro-life versus pro-choice, whether it's, you know, someone that's, uh, you know, whatever, pick, pick, pick the issue. I think that um, when I wake up in the morning, that's kind of what, what I think about most of the day. So how do, how do I find ways to help build these bridges? And it's very difficult work. Um, I, I often think of the, uh, I don't equate myself with the Hebrew prophets, but I think anybody that's undertaking any kind of work like this is doing some kind of prophetic work. My colleagues in the academy who are far, much further to the left would probably laugh at that self-characterization, <laughs> but um, that's okay. I, I think that uh, if you look at the work of a Jeremiah or Elijah or Elisha, Habakkuk, there's a particular kind of sense of urgency that that they seem that they, they feel this need to speak to or their life is not going to be worth anything. And that strong sense that you're grabbed to do that kind of work, I think is not only it's difficult, it's uh, you, you, you want to prefer not to have it, to undertake the burdens of it, but it's also a kind of grace and you feel pleased that you were given some, some, some assignment to undertake, even if it's fuzzy. So I do have that sense. One um, just anecdote or, or passage from the Tao Te Ching that I think kind of builds a bridge again from the way I see things and, you know, the Tikkun Olam perspective, the Benjamin Hoff's translation of the Tao Te Ching, my favorite passage is, when you see the world as part of yourself, you will take care of it. When you see yourself as part of the world, you will be taken care of. And this passage in the Tao, and I would argue most, if not all religions, seek to dissolve this separation between self and the world. And so by taking care of oneself, again, with a small S or a capital S, is mm -hmm. taking care of the world and vice versa. So I think that is the compromise point, you know, and I would argue the difference is what your focus is on the foreground or on the background but yeah um mm -hmm. i think that, that in and jumping off from that john is um there's a is that movie pay it forward mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm, where mm -hmm. the there's a man who is uh, an addict and he's really in a mess and you might remember the scene and he's walking and basically all hope is lost for this guy and he's crossing a bridge i think it's the golden gate bridge i'm not sure but he's, he's on the bridge and he sees a woman standing there with with pumps on and a trench coat and her briefcase is laid against the railing, and she's about to jump. And he's appealing to her to come down off that rail. And 
she said, step away, you know, get away from me. I'm going to jump. If you come any closer, I'm going to jump. And she said, I don't want you to save me. I don't want you to save me. Just leave me alone. And then he says to her, I need you to come down because that will save me. And I remember when I saw the movie, my eyes just flooded. And the next series of, uh, of shots uh, in the movie showed them sitting in, in the cafeteria in a coffee shop uh, through the glass window, glass pane with the writing of the name of the shop on it. And you just see the two of them sitting there and they're laughing and, tra and trading stories. That's Takun Alam, uh, as much as a march in Washington for climate change is. I think, uh, I think that is the bridge it's it's not it's not binary it's it's not either it's not it's not pick one or the other it's it's both and so what i'm hearing is connection right connection relationship that in order to live life and feel fulfilled and have a capacity for joy and celebration we need to be a blessing to others and feel the blessings others bestow upon us I don't mean, you know, I bought you a new car or I bought you whatever, but the blessings through our actions. And it brings my mind, which I think connects with what the two of you are saying, to that place of being in the world on, on four levels, me and myself, as John was talking about. First, I have to be true to myself. I have to have a healthy self. I have to take care of my body. I have to take care of my mind. I have to have enough food, shelter, the basics. And then I can go out to my neighbor. What is your neighbor? Well, then there's, there's your family. And then your neighbor, what is your neighbor? Neighbor is anybody other than yourself and your family are your neighbors. The Torah, the Bible uses the word neighbor all the time. It's all the others. And how do I behave towards them and spread that to the community, to the country, the United States of America, if you will, to the entire world. In Judaism on Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement at one mint with ourselves, with our community, that has to be cleaned up first. And only then, if you believe in God, can you be at one with God. And all of the commandments, the laws, the mitzvot in the Torah, which which are really laws about human behavior and justice. They're divided into two categories. Bain adam le atzmo, between a man and other humans. Bain adam le chavero, let me correct my Hebrew, between a man and his neighbor. And bain adam le makom, and between a human and God. And then the Torah is filled with 613 commandments, many of which we've been talking about. It starts with guard. I'm just going to read a few to you, if you don't mind, because this is how to live a life of, of meaning with what's in front of you every day. Guard your own health. Take good physical care. Bless and know you are blessed. How do you be a blessing to other people and receive with gratitude what others do for you? Love your neighbor. We've already talked about that. And then it gets it drills down to specificity. Keep your promises, be counted, and be accountable. Hold no grudges, take no revenge. The world would be a much less violent place if we could get control of that aspect of human nature that everybody has, the capacity to do wrong, to do bad, to do evil, which is a loaded word. Hold no grudges, hold no revenge. 
address loss and anger carefully without taking revenge. Go to Dr. John Catone, work it all out instead of screaming and hitting your wife and children or vice versa, your husband and your children or your parents. Now I'm trying to be funny. Avoid gossip, avoid slander, create no obstacles for others, either literally for the blind man walking down the street or obstacles with people at work who you don't want to advance for some reason because you don't like them or their skin is the wrong color or they have the wrong faith or no faith at all. Avoid deception. I could go on and on and on. But I think for me, the most powerful thing is the idea of becoming an agent of blessing for others. I'm looking at the time and I think I'd like to ask a wrap up question. I would love to go into the idea of human nature and cruelty and violence, but I don't think that will wrap us up. Since there can be no certainty that God does not exist or faith in God does not, God does not exist. The most we can say is that there is no evidence of God. If there's no evidence of God, why have faith? Why have faith? What would the world look like without it? I think the world would be uh, quite impoverished without faith. And when I say faith now, I'll use the, the notion of the traditional religious faiths, um, Hinduism, Judaism, Christianity, etc. But some persons listening might say, these faiths have created a tremendous amount of violence in the world, to which I refer them to a book by a guy named Kavanaugh called The Myth of Religious Violence. Most of the violence in the world is created because human beings can suck, that they have malformed characters, that they're greedy. These things have nothing to do necessarily with religion. Uh, sometimes it does, but it's not necessarily the case. As far as evidence goes, if you're looking for evidence in the form of a scientific experiment proving the existence of God, you're probably not going to get one. I think that a God that can be discovered by such an experiment is probably not God, just as the Tao that you can name is not the Tao, right? And, you know, I think that I'm back to Emerson, Nete Quesiveris Extra. I don't have really many doubts about the existence of God because I exist. And so if someone were to ask me, um, and I, when I say I exist, I don't mean that just my somatic body exists. I mean my consciousness, my ex the, the quality of experience that I am capable of as a sort of as a kind of being. That's my argument for the existence of God. And so I find at some point people, again, this is a question of what problem with language and the kind of words that we use, evidence and proofs in a scientific sense, no. Can you point to things in the world? Can you point to complexity and things as suggestions that you're probably on the right track? Yes, you can. Is that conclusive in a scientific sense? Will it convince a hard-headed atheistic scientist? No, it won't. But, you know, my, my response to that is okay. You know, there's one more thing else I'll add. I'll stop on that point. If you were to say, and I'm a philosopher, so if I were to go to one of my colleagues and say, look, you have to experience religion. You got to get inside of it in order to really understand. They say, well, that's a cop-out, right? You know, we can deal with the propositions that religion offers or faith offers, and we can just deal with the, with the concepts and then we can make an assessment. And I'm like, no, no, you really do need to get inside. 
because it's only by walking. Uh, that's why in so many traditions it's called the way or the Tao, or you have to walk it. And it's only by walking, sort of like being married. You don't really know what being married is like until 10 years in. Right. You've got to walk it. Right. Um, And uh, that sounds like a terrible cop out intellectually, but I'm sorry. What can I tell you? I don't really like poetry. Well, why don't you try to read a few books? Mm -hmm. Um, I don't like the opera. Well, why don't you go sit through five or 10 operas? Then tell Mm -hmm. me whether you like opera or not. In large existential experiential things, big things, you have to do the work. You have to do the experience. You know, uh, you can't read a book. Uh, you can't look at a proposition and, and logic chop with a truth table, right? It doesn't work when you're talking about something that's incredibly important as the meaning of your own existence. Thank you, David. You know, and I, I would just wrap things up to say, to answer Daphne's question, why have faith? My answer to that would be, another question in return, which is what else are you going to do? What's the alternative? If the alternative is cynicism and a lack of faith, well, that lack of faith in something larger and existential doesn't exist in isolation. It necessarily bleeds into other areas of life. And if you have a difficulty having faith with a capital F, it leads to difficulty having faith with a small f. And when we struggle to have faith in the things that we cannot see and the things that we cannot prove, well, there are more things in this existence that we cannot see or prove than there are things that we can see and prove it's tremendously limiting and prevents us from growing to become greater than we currently are. Even the scientists, the most non-religious scientists need to have faith in many other things. The previous research upon which their current research is built, the calibration of their instruments and so on and so forth. The agencies that are tasked with making sure various standards are upheld and so on and so forth. So if you're not going to have faith, then, you know, I see that as really impinging upon every other area of your life in a way that prevents you from, from growing. And you both mentioned at different times, I think both of you have uh, the word soul. Um, and when you're talking about using that Sanskrit expression, tattvam asi, the thou, you, me, is much deeper and richer than the personality that we construct. I mean, we are born with certain genes and certain uh, orientations and toward anger or whatever, right? The deeper self, the self that Daphne was talking about when people look into each other's eyes. I do this with my students. I'll tell them in a particular lecture that I do, turn and face each other. And you're going to giggle and you're going to feel this discomfort. Why? Because you know you're not really looking at just an animal. You know you're not looking at a thing. You're looking into someone's soul. Right? And that's dangerous. And it's exciting to, to make that leap 
from thinghood into soul connection. Daphne rattled off, if you if I can put it that way, that began to rattle off the six hundred and thirteen, you know, laws or rules in the in the Mosaic law and and I, I was thinking that the only place that one gets to go where one takes all of those things into consideration is a religious tradition. No one sits around and talks about utter selflessness outside of Buddhism or Judaism or Christianity. No one does that. I mean, I teach ethics courses. It's academic, it's intellectual, where the rubber meets the road when you realize that your commitments are soul commitments, that you're doing something because you're being commanded to by your creator, or that there is a sense in which you're being watched in your performance in this life, and that it matters how you perform. That is a very powerful thing to get people to behave themselves in certain ways that are more loving and more more giving toward their fellow human being. And now, as we know now, in the last hundred years or so, how we behave toward the environment. Religion, with all of its warts and issues and problems, there's really no other place where one goes to really give themselves a good ass-whipping morally and spiritually, right? Um, puts themselves, put themselves through the ringer because you're not going to do it in, in university. You're not going to do it in grade school. You're not going to do it around the kitchen table. You're going to do it when there's a with framework for that kind of difficult work on the soul that can, that doesn't always, that can make you a much better human being. So religion is a phenomena of community. I'm reading Rabbi Walpi but also of the individual seeking soul in relationship, not only to others, but to God. The theologian Martin Buber explains relationships using his coinage, I and thou. Buber taught that no one exists in isolation. There is no simple I by itself. We're always in relationship to others, our family, our friends, our loved ones, even if they're not present. They're in our thoughts, in our feelings, in our worries, in our concerns. The quality of our lives is in the quality of our ties to others. And to bring it back full circle, I don't know if it's bringing it back full circle to the creation of the world or in the past century, our relationship to nature and the physical world. Albert Einstein said, intuiting the unseen is a gift of perspective. There are two ways to see the world, as if everything is a miracle or as if nothing is a miracle. And then Rabbi Wolpe continues, living with an awareness of the miraculous re-enchants the world. And he's, I think, referring to that sense of wonder we all know yeah. about from our childhoods. From a flower to a star, it is easy to confuse knowing what a thing is made of, dust, with what knowing what it is really. Mm -hmm. Significance overspills the physical description of a flower, or a star, mastering botany is not the same as appreciating beauty. Acknowledging that overflow of what a flower means or what a human being is, not in chemical composition, but in spiritual significance, is seeing everything as a miracle. Mm -hmm. You look into another's eyes, that's what happens when we fall in love. We can't take our eyes away from the other person's eyes. Where am I going? Seeing everything can be a miracle or not. Radical amazement. Yes, radical amazement. Thank going you. back to Abraham Joshua Heschel, which we've been through. Um, 
three of us in, in the book mm-hmm. discussion. And then there's, again, going back to William James, who says, you know, the danger that exists for modern people is that once we've explained something, we think we have explained it away. Hmm. Um, and then there's this fallacy of decomposition, if you will, that the idea that to name the constituent parts of something is to understand the thing. You don't understand a rainbow or a, fo- or a flower in the truest, most robust existential way, uh, experiential way, by naming the petals, <laughs> right, uh, measuring them. This, unfortunately, is the moment that we're in in modern, secular, materialistic, physicalist thinking. And it is, it is uh, very corrosive. Uh, I th- and I think that is one of the contributors to the, the level of mm-hmm. uh, depression and anxiety and use of, of drugs to, dre- to, to address these things that, that we find ourselves in today. When you've reduced all of experience to composition of things, life is a question of career choice where you will live and if you get all that mixed right somehow you'll feel full and of course you don't this goes back to some some lectures that alan watts gave you know you it's it's a hoax um this idea of uh just get the composition understand the composition and get your life right in terms of compositionally and you will and you will be fulfilled no it doesn't work that way your life is not understood in pieces it's understood as a whole and the soul is a whole. We need to wrap things up now, but I want to thank you, David, and I especially want to thank you, Daphna, for presenting this to all of us. And I also want to thank you out there listening and crossing today's bridge with us on why faith matters. There'll be other bridges, but we'll cross them when we come to them. And I hope you'll join us for those as well. Take care, everyone. Each episode of the Gesher Sessions podcast, including its recording and contents, is copyright of the Gesher Sessions. All rights reserved. Today's episode was produced and edited by Lisa Catone. The music used for the beginning and end of today's episode was composed by Anthony LaRoe, who owns its copyright and gave permission for its use.